to be a happy channel that maybe you could just turn to a happy channel. Right. So uh, everything sucks, sucks, sucks. The world's going to end. Terrible, terrible. Oh, the happy channel. Yeah. Uh, Senator Paul, welcome back to the show. Glad to be with you, Matt. And I know there's lots of activity on the hill, so we're gonna we're gonna sort of rifle through some things. But we had to get a proper bourbon before we dealt cheers. with. Uh, cheers, cheers to all the depressing things that are happening in Washington uh, D.C. right now. Oh yes, if we could just get the legislature out of town, then things will be happier. You know? Maybe, yeah. Like, could, are we allowed to celebrate Festivus every day of the year? <laughs> Yeah, maybe. You know, this will be a sad year, you know, without Frank Costanza around, you know, know. now that he's gone. But, uh, no, I think it was Twain said the dangerous time, you know, is when legislature's in. The only time you're safe is when they're not in session. So August, and some conservatives and even libertarians get this wrong. Y'all need to stay in place in August and work because we have so many problems. It's like, don't you realize we'll, we'll misdiagnose the problems, come up with the wrong solution, and then waste more of the taxpayer money? That's the solution to everything. Yeah. I feel like at this rate, um, every month that Congress is in costs us another trillion dollars in, in deficit spending. Yeah, in the old days, it only would cost you $100 billion when yeah. Congress was in session, doing foolish things, throwing money at problems, thinking they were the answer to everything. Only a, a cool $100 billion maybe in a month. That would have been a lot, actually. Do you remember... This is a long, long time ago, in 2008, when there was a recession. And do you remember how conservatives were outraged at both Republicans and Democrats? But you know how much they spent? I think it was $800 billion at one time. We, that pales in comparison. That's chump change. Now, we don't we don't even consider, not we, I don't want to be part of the we, Congress doesn't even consider they're attempting to fix your problem unless they give you a trillion. Yeah, yeah. And that might not be enough. Yeah, it's like the zeros don't seem to matter anymore. Um, you were uh, so let's let's start with something that you just did. You you were at a hearing this morning, speaking to the new special assistant for Venezuela at the State Department, Elliot Abrams. Um, I take it you guys don't always see eye to eye on things. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure he knew because not one person mentioned it. I wanted to make sure someone in the country knew that the person they're supporting down there is also a socialist. Now, he may not, at this point, be an authoritarian, but my point to him was is that if you're going to send troops down there, you're going to ask my kids or your kids to go to war in Venezuela for freedom or freedom fighters, make sure that you tell them we're choosing one form of socialism over another and that socialism was the problem down there. And he sloughed it off, and he just sort of dismissed it and said, no, it's authoritarianism. And this is sort of the same view I got on The View when I went on there, is uh, the so-called Republican Ana Navarro saying, Maduro's a thug, he's a murderer. And I was like, yes, and a socialist. Yeah. And maybe there's a correlation between socialism and thuggery. Yeah. Yeah, his, his answer was kind of surprising because... He essentially said, I don't have a problem with socialism. (laughs) Socialist countries are not really part of of U.S. foreign policy. It's just bad socialists and... and it's and your your argument is it's a it's a feature not a bug. Yeah. And you know, we went over this and you and I have talked about our book, you know, the case against socialism and in it we talk about uh, whether or not it's uh, an inevitability or whether it's happenstance. Is it do we just get unlucky that every time we finally get socialism, we don't get a benign form or somehow it goes from so-called benign or democratic socialism, but it seems like time and time again we wind up with authoritarianism. 
And I don't know if it was Hayek or who it was, but people have mentioned that maybe it's not an accident that actually if you're going to take people's stuff, you know, you're not supposed to take people's stuff. Yeah. If you're going to take it from them, that eventually they resist and they uh, it requires someone increasingly ruthless to take people's stuff from them. Yeah, and that's like the uh, the, the common left narrative about Joseph Stalin and, and Applebaum wrote a book about this and I might have mentioned it before, but this this idea that Stalin was an accident, that, that such a, a murderous individual got into power, that wasn't supposed to be part of the plan. And she argues that, no, no, he's, he's actually behaving exactly how an authoritarian socialist would behave if you want to control power and force people to do things they don't want to do. Right. And um, some people talk about it being the, the complete form of socialism. The more complete you want socialism to be, the more force has to be used. So if I want sort of a little bit of socialism or interventionism like we have in our country where I'm just going to tax you or regulate you in a way and I may fine you, but I'm not going to actually take your house or take your car literally or say you can't go to church or you can't do this, um, the milder form doesn't take much, as much aggression. I can threaten you with jail and that may be enough. But in a society where they're actually taking your property and taking your house and you have more complete socialism, the more complete you get towards the state owning things, the more ruthlessness it takes. And But it's, you know, there's Stalin, then there's Hitler, then there's Mao, then there's Pol Pot, you know, and then there's Chavez. A lot of the left in our country love Chavez. Um, still some like Maduro, frankly, but they... They liked him, but they say, oh, I don't know what, you know, oh, now he's an authoritarian. He's not a socialist anymore. And they yeah. blame it on um, him being a thug, not admitting that there's a correlation. I take it there's still a drumbeat within certain wings of the Trump administration for regime change in Venezuela. <laughs> well, this is the interesting thing I asked Elliot Abrams is I said, well, and I like to remind most of his the president's appointees that the president has been very consistent and very suspicious of regime change. He thinks it's the worst geopolitical mistake we made in the Middle East was toppling Saddam Hussein and taking Iraq. And I reminded him of that. I said, some of you guys, and I meant him, are now rattling you know, the cages to, to take over Iran. And it's like, well, the reason Iran's stronger is uh, because you got rid of their main nemesis, Hussein. You changed the balance of power. You created a government where there was no government. And the, out of the chaos, lo and behold, sprang terrorism. And they just don't want to hear it. But, yeah, if he had his way, he he would be for regime change. But the question is, is will they be any better off if they still have price controls, inflation, and they spend money that they don't have, which are all sort of forms and aspects of socialism? Will they be any better off because they have elections? See, they're convinced, oh, if you have elections, everything. But that sounds kind of like, who's that sound like? That sounds like Bernie Sanders to yeah, me yeah. or AOC. They're fine with socialism as long as there's a democracy. And it's like, I guess so is Elliot Abrams. Yeah. So um, another, like, in a, and he refused to answer your question as to whether or not he supported the president, presuming the Trump administration's policy that Iraq was a mistake. Um, but the president has been trying pretty much from day one to get our troops out of Afghanistan. And yet, we're still in Afghanistan, and I know you've been pushing him and, and Congress, but are we going to get out of Afghanistan? I talk to him all the time about it. I think the president sincerely wants to get out. Libertarians are frustrated because they're like, well, he hadn't, and the numbers are maybe slightly less in Afghanistan, but 
the numbers of troops in Saudi Arabia are actually more, and it's been sort of an inconsistent, it hasn't really been non-interventionism or less intervention, it's been sort of, a, you know, a middling sort of policy. I do think, though, from a libertarian perspective, um, I try to look at what are the bright sides and influence that. So, for example, I think his interactions with Iran, I haven't agreed with everything. I didn't agree necessarily with killing Soleimani. I thought that was an act of war. And yet, in the midst of all that, when he could have attacked more, when they shot down a drone and they fired on ships, he did show restraint that I don't think a George Bush would have shown. Yeah. I don't think a Joe Biden would have shown that restraint. So, you know, we never have who we think is perfect, you know, in a position, but there are aspects of the president's foreign policy that do lean in the direction of libertarianism. I mean, I do think that that he's uh, been not served well by the, and you, of course, have said this, but, you know, hiring John Bolton and hiring, hiring Elliot Abrams, I mean, I told you I don't want to hear that name ever again. Don't ever mean no. I'm just kidding. But yeah, when I think of which John, one, I, I yeah. don't want to hear either. <laughs> no, when I think of John Bolton, I think you know I'm talking to John Bolton Jr. Yeah. and Elliot Abrams. They're both big regime change people, and uh, I worry. Why does the president pick people who don't agree with one fundamental thing? It's like if I were hiring, and he, if President Trump appointed me to hire his foreign policy team, which, frankly, he should have. Yeah. But had he asked me to do that, the first question I would ask you when you came into interview is, do you agree with the president that the Iraq war was a mistake? If you don't, goodbye. Yeah. Because why would I even start to talk with somebody if you can't agree on that fundamental premise? I've had people come in who are big Republicans and they're being appointed to positions and they have to come through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I warn them in advance— I'm, I'm letting you know so you can prepare. I'm going to ask you, do you agree with the president on this? And most of them still fumble because they actually don't. And yeah. that's the problem. He's not getting changed because he's appointing people who are from the neoconservative world who don't agree with trying to leave Afghanistan. They want to stay. Yeah. Um, are there Democrats? It's, it's political season. So a, a lot of partisans will go back into their corner. And and that's usually particularly true with, with President Trump. But are there Democrats who you would consider steadfast allies on getting out of these these permanent wars? There are, and there are some that will rise above politics. And right now, they have to, because they have to rise up and actually agree with the president on this, or at least talk about something the president's talking about. Uh, Ro Khanna, I think, has been good and consistent against war. He and I and others signed a letter. Some others of the Progressive Caucus and the Libertarian Wing signed a letter to the president uh, saying that uh, not getting more engaged in Syria was a good idea. And we've also signed letters on Afghanistan. On my committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, I talk with uh, Tom Udall, who has a, a bill with myself. He's a Democrat from mm -hmm. New Mexico, and I think he'd accept the label progressive. He and I have a bill together to end the Afghan war, end the authorization of force within a year, and actually give our troops a sizable bonus, $2,500 apiece. And that still would save money because we save $50 billion the first year. Even yeah. with the bonuses, we'd save about $45 billion. And so there are good Democrats on this, but it's harder and harder. The, the Trump derangement syndrome, the hate for Trump is so bad, particularly in the media and with some Democrats, not that those aren't the same thing, but uh, it's such that they can't see beyond or get back to what they used to always for. Now, when Obama was in, they were happy to have me supporting policies they supported with their president. But if, if the reverse is, is difficult for them because there's such a hatred for Trump. Yeah. 
And I ask that, and, and, and I'm going to pivot to police reform and criminal justice, because um, if nothing else, the, the murder of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and, and other similar events should have been a catalyst to do some substantial reforms in, in the Congress. And you stepped up very early with the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, and, and you've been talking about over-militarization of police. I think you've introduced legislation on that for as years, well. For years, yeah. For years, and you, you've been a consistent voice since you got to the Senate. Uh, Mike Lee has been a consistent voice, and you have had um, bipartisan um, cooperation with, with a number of people. But for all of the heat and all of the protests, and, and now some, a lot of the violence that's, that it's devolved into, there's been no movement on, on criminal justice right. or police reform. And I hate to be a, a bearer of partisan news, but this is the Democrat side that didn't want any. So, for example, you can easily look at the Republican proposal and say this is weak sauce, it, uh, there isn't much there. And that's a valid criticism. But... They just voted no to even get on the bill. I probably wouldn't have voted for the Republican bill because there were some things I objected to, but I voted to get on the bill, and then let's see what happens. Yeah. Now, the Republican leadership often isn't you know, completely honest about it, to tell you the truth. They often don't allow amendments. But had they not allowed any of my amendments or the Democrat amendments, then you vote to get off it and you blame the Republicans. It actually got a solid case then. You blame yeah. the Republicans for not allowing amendments. I think there would have been significant pressure on the Republicans to allow amendments. And several of those amendments would have passed, like the no-knock uh, raid bill, you know, getting rid of no-knock raids, I think would have passed. I think militarization of the, uh, getting rid of militarization, like bayonets for the police and tanks and all this stuff, I think that would have passed also. And uh, in the end, Democrats said, every one of them, they all voted together and said, we're not getting on the bill, we'll campaign on it in November. And so there's a certain cockiness. You know, yeah. you know they think they're going to defeat Trump, and then they also think they're going to take the Senate. They might. But uh, and then they can set the agenda if they get rid of the filibuster, which they might do that also. But for right now, they're not in a talking mood. Same's going on with like this more COVID bailout money. The Democrats want more money. The Republicans want more money. The only dispute between these two groups of big government people is how much. Yeah. Um, but right now, the Democrats are holding off doing anything because I think they would like to see uh, maybe there's campaign on Republicans won't give us enough free money. Sure. And I, I remember that that dynamic uh, when when I was uh, working on criminal justice reform and there was this transpartisan coalition going into the to, to the 2016 election. Uh, some of my progressive friends would would openly say, we don't want to give a Republican a win, particularly on this issue. This is our issue. Right. And I guess the assumption was that, that Hillary Clinton would win. But it's it's a, it's it's kind of a, a wicked tribalism that prevents us from actually fixing right. really big problems. And sometimes we get beyond it. We did one small first step, the first step back on criminal justice reform, and it was good. It was it was somewhat weak sauce, but yeah. it did some good things, and we got that done under under President Trump, you know, with a Republican Senate and a Democrat House. Um, but for the eight years of Obama, for the six out of the eight that I was here, I would go to the White House. I was willing to meet and have my picture taken with President Obama, who I didn't agree with on a lot to be for criminal justice reform, but we never got it done. 
And, you know, to President Trump's credit, we actually did get it done. I think we need to get more done, but it was a first step. I also appreciate for those who don't think people should be in jail forever that he commuted the sentence of like Alice Marie Johnson, who's somebody who really, among a lot of people, really did deserve not to be in prison and probably never should have been there that long. But he has done some good things on these issues and he could do more. But it's it's why I try to stay where I can continue to try to uh, push him in the direction that I think is, is, a, is a good direction. And I think he has come in our direction quite a bit, more so than maybe his natural instincts were yeah. five, ten years ago. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you look at some of his rhetoric from 16, I think he's definitely thought about it more and heard some other voices and, and, and more thoughtful on this. And I, I do think it, it's sort of counterintuitive, but right now the a lot of Democrats are the roadblocks. and. Right. I mean, some of your Republican colleagues, like Tom Cotton, say we have an under-incarceration problem, but right. I suspect he's we- the, He's fortunately a minority in our caucus now. There's only yeah. two or three of the voices like that in our caucus, and most of our voices have kind of gone in the opposite direction. And so um, I think we're actually doing better and better on criminal justice reform, and I think we could keep doing it. I think we could do a, a, a you know, First Step Act revisited or a Second Step Act. I think yeah. we really could uh, do something again. But we're not going to do it in the middle of this campaign season right now. It's going to have to happen afterwards. And, you know, if Republicans lose the White House, we have to agree to keep working on this. But frankly, people who are thinking about who to vote for need to remember Biden wasn't any great hero of uh, less incarceration of African-Americans or people using drugs. Biden was throw the book at him and he was going to get rid of all these terrible super predators which uh, really, I would think, from a certain perspective, must seem very obnoxious, you know, to, for him to use those la- that language. But um, so I don't know. I think we, we still have a chance. But unfortunately, we have a chance for almost nothing before the election other than yeah. shoveling money. And I've told people we have no money. We have no rainy day account. We have no savings account. It's not like I can walk over to the Federal Reserve and open this big safe and out. Oh, there's all this money. I'm going to, why don't we get envelopes and stick all this money in envelopes and send it to people? Yeah. But we're doing it, but we don't have any money. It's all right. borrowed or created. So I have this theory, and you, you feel feel free to pull me off the ledge, but Nancy Pelosi wants to spend another $3 trillion that we don't have. Mitch McConnell wants to spend a trillion that we don't have. And I think the compromise position in the middle is going to be four to five trillion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The only compromise that ever happens around Washington, and actually happens all the time, is to spend money and to borrow money. And people think, oh, in Washington, there's no compromise, and the right and the left are so far apart. No, they're not. It's actually the opposite of what you think. There's too much compromise in Washington. It's all about spending money we don't have. But um, in our caucus last week, Republican Senator stood up and he said, the conservative position's a trillion. I'm not going beyond a trillion. You know, I'm willing to borrow another trillion. This is after we've already borrowed three trillion and we're one trillion in the hole just for normal expenses. Normal yeah. everyday budgeting, a trillion in the hole. We have added three, so we're four trillion in the hole. Now we're talking about a trillion and they're like, the conservative position is a trillion, but we have to spend a trillion because you know what? We have to get elected and we have all these people and the people in the battleground states have to go home and say that they got free money for their people so they can get elected. But if they don't get elected, you know the Democrats will spend even more. So a trillion is now the conservative position and another trillion in, in, in borrowing. Yeah. And, and I think Nancy Pelosi knows that, 
And that's why I think you're going to get four or five because she's going to. Right. They either completely cave or Republicans finally get a backbone and they stand up and then they bludgeon them with it. But I've also said the people who believe you're in a battleground state that you're going to win. And this always happens. You see them as they get closer and closer. You see this look of fear. I might have to go into the private sector. I might have to have a real job. Oh, no, I might have to get up in the morning and and put a coat and tie on and go to work. And they're like, what do I do to get elected? I'm going to vote like the Democrats. I'm going to vote for as much money as I can pass out. And so you see them now. If you watch the voting trends and voting records, those who are up for election, boom, boom, boom. They're all going to the other side. But they don't realize that the conservative base where I came from, including the libertarian conservative base, We hated the bank bailouts. That's why the Tea Party started. That was this whole thing that got going. And we're not that excited about it. It's like, we have a choice. We could stay home or we could vote for the libertarian candidate. Both choices are out there. And in in a close state, even if 3% of your hardcore conservatives that are the backbone of the party either vote for the libertarian or stay home, you lose. Every one of these five senators who's now think they have to pass out all kinds of free money could lose because they lose a conservative base. Yeah, it's it's frustrating that it's it's sort of like the movie Groundhog Day, where I feel like the voters have taught Republicans that lesson over and over again. You know, starting in 2010, but you could go back to 1994, that that being actually different from the Democrats, being fiscal conservatives, defending the Constitution, these are winning issues. But when you split the difference yeah. on the Democrats' bad ideas, like why would people show up for you? You know, I think the my hope is the one good thing that could come out of this is we're beginning to fight. In the springtime, nobody was even here. I came back for one of the votes, but I didn't. I would have voted no, but I didn't force the vote to be recorded because I didn't want to force some of our older senators to come back and be blamed if one of them should die. And, I mean, I have sympathy for people, and this yeah. is a bad disease, and so I didn't force them to come back. Now we're all back. I can't be accused of, you know, in the spring they were accusing me of trying to kill everyone anyway because I had this uh, virus. But they can't accuse me of that now. I will force votes on this. And there's beginning to solidify some opposition to this. There is a a remnant of conservatism in the party. It's small and in the elected officials. But people are starting to rally. My hope is that maybe it could be the beginning of like a Tea Party movement again where people get frustrated with the big government Republicans. And the media never quite got this. They're like, oh, you hate President Obama. That's why the Tea Party started. It's like, well, no, it started before him. Yeah. And it really started in response to Republicans. You were there. Yeah. It started in response to big government Republicans, not really to Obama at all. Yeah. The uh, thing about Pelosi's bill, and I suspect that there's some version of it in McConnell's bill as well, that, that really irks me. And, and by the way, almost everything in that legislation is, is garbage and creates perverse incentives. But the, the bailout of primarily blue states, primarily New York and California, who were bankrupt before all this started, right. who, who so aggressively locked down their economies. And of course, that predictably resulted in them just completely draining their state treasuries. Like if you don't allow businesses to right. do business, they can't pay taxes. And now we're going to bail them out. And that strikes me as rewarding the worst kind of behavior. Rewarding bad behavior, but also encouraging more bad behavior. So right now they don't have any income. They can get it one of two ways. We can give it to them or they can open up their economy for business when people start paying taxes again. If you give them money, they're going to be less likely to open their economy again. So everything we do to give either people money we don't have or states money 
always a disincentive to opening. Yeah. And the hysteria over not opening the economy or not opening the schools isn't based on science. They say they want to be science evidence, evidence-based, et cetera. But the science really is on the side of opening. And the science is that um, really there are a bunch of age groups here that really aren't at risk. Kids, those under 45, the death rate's less than the seasonal flu. Above age 45, more than the seasonal flu. And as you go up, quite a bit more. It's dangerous for, for older people, and it's not very dangerous for young people. But they have this collectivist notion that, well, it's your responsibility then. Everybody should wear a mask to protect older people. But we never used to have that. I mean, how many people do you think are on uh, chemotherapy for cancer right now? 100,000, 200,000, pretty many. We're a country yeah. of 330 million people. And it's sad. I mean, I may have great sympathy for people who are going through that. But we've never thought that everybody in society should wear a mask for, for people who are on chemotherapy. Yeah. That's essentially what we're arguing for now is that everybody should wear a mask for those who are at risk instead of warning those at risk not to probably go to baseball games, not to go to a big church service. And uh, But if you're 25 years old and you have a kid that's two and three, going to church probably is absolutely no risk to you at all. If we're going to talk about relative risks, it, it strikes me that, that cancer is 10 times the killer that, that COVID is, and it's the second largest right. killer of, of any disease. And and all of these mandates, particularly on hospitals, have prevented patients from getting treatment. Right. People have a tough time sort of thinking about risk and public policy. I mean, if you look at how many people die from falls versus terrorism, falling is way worse problem. And if we could just put some guardrails on the ladders and, you know, elevators on the ladders and, you know, helmets for people going up ladders. But we don't do all that. We spend almost no money on that. But we spend all this money on terrorism, trillions of dollars. But falling is much, much more dangerous than terrorism. Yeah. yeah. So um, I watched your last exchange with uh, Dr. Fauci. And, and I, have a, I have an idea for you. If you actually <laughs> want the public schools to open again, we should stop paying teachers for not teaching. Oh gosh, you're so mean. So you would radical. not pay people. You would you would not pay people who don't work. How mean, man! It's my like I, I live. Unfortunately, I live in this town, Washington D.C., and it really is starting to get under my skin that no one in this town seems to be nervous about the fact that we just had the worst economic quarter in my lifetime. I think right. perhaps in history, because the the machine, the the government employee ecosystem, including all of the, the sort of private interests that feed off of it, they're all fine right now. And at some point they won't be, but it strikes me that, that teachers would be more interested in actually doing something reasonable if they actually had skin in the game. Right. Yeah, they would, but there's absolutely no backbone, zero backbone for actually saying you won't pay people who refuse to work. There's another choice that would actually have a chance, and they're even trying to stop that, too, and that would be that uh, private schools would stay open, and guess what? People would get frustrated by having no education in public schools, and people would flood over to that. So the public schools are now trying to get the public health people to prevent private schools from being open, too, and they did it in uh, Montgomery County over in Maryland. But I think the governor's now reversed it, and we'll see what happens with that. But it'll be a great experiment. Uh, Unfortunately, not everybody can do it. Now, I'd be for vouchers and let everybody do it. In fact, I have an amendment to the bill coming up to the, if there's a COVID relief uh, bill that comes up, there's something called Title I money comes out of the Department of Education. I'm not for the Department of Education or having the federal government involved, but they are involved and they pass out money to school districts all across the country. 
What I'd like to do is say that that money follows a student wherever the student goes. Yeah. So it's allotted per capita to each student. The student wants to be taught at home. The money follows a student to the parents who can buy computers and things for homeschooling. They want to go to private school, it goes to a private school. And it also goes to whichever public school they want to. So even, even if we're choosing among public schools in Louisville, we have a poor area of town and the schools aren't doing so well. We have a richer area of town and the schools are doing better. Those kids ought to be able to take their money and go across town if they can figure out how to get across town and go to a better school. And uh, I would completely transform education because competition works. Competition breeds excellence. It, it, if actually letting parents spend their own money on their children. Oh, I know freedom. No, who would? That's so antithetical, you know, to allow know. people free choice. I don't uh, know. But um, I think it does have potential, and conservatives haven't done enough with promoting uh, school choice yeah. and what it will do. And conservatives often aren't good at showing that they empathize with people who have a rough life. Yeah. And there have been people who have said that education is the real civil rights issue of our era, and I believe that. And the people against letting you get a good education have been often the teachers' union who don't want to give you choice. They hate even public charter schools, much less private charter schools. But give people choice. The thing the teachers ought to realize is that, guess what? If you're a good teacher, it's actually going to bid up your salary. If you have more school choices and people can go to a private school and private says you're one of the best teachers, why don't you come over to our school? That's a bidding war for your services. You're, you know, If you're a good teacher, the salaries will go up. But um, I don't know. We've we've failed at getting that moving, and uh, often even Republicans have been divided over over school choice. It kind of goes back to that. I mean, I call it haves versus have-nots. But the the Beltway bubble, and there's there's a bubble in in every city where if if you're wealthy enough, and this and your school is lousy, you can just opt out right. and and go buy an alternative thing. But um, and you know, parents that are stuck. Um, with the schools closed, and maybe they they have two jobs right now, um, they're the ones that suffer. It's not it's not my Beltway right. neighbors. Well, and the other people to blame are frankly Dr. Fauci and others who are spreading hysteria. So when he's coming to me and say, "Well, he's unsure, and he's just not," oh, woe is me, we couldn't do this. I say, "Well, the evidence shows that children rarely get this, rarely transmit it." And rarely die from this. So the, the mortality is about one in a million or less for those under age, 18, uh, under age 18. Very low. But they've also done contact tracing in four different countries. Countrywide contact tracing in countries that did a lot of contact tracing, they find rare, if any, transmission from children up. And you say, well, why would that be? That's so, that sound doesn't make any sense. The reason is, is you find rare transmission from asymptomatic people, whether they're kids or adults. Why? Because if you're not coughing and hacking up stuff, you aren't spreading it. So I, I had it, and I was asymptomatic. My wife didn't get it. That's not a study, but it just shows you that it isn't always that easy to get. And um, it is more, some people end up getting really sick and coughing and stuff. They're very contagious and can spread it to a lot of people. But the kids don't. Now they're saying we have to test every kid, you know, and then they yeah. got to wear a mask and test them again at the end of the day. The bottom line is, is you know what I would do? I'd open every school. Now we'd wait and see if anybody gets sick. If you have a bunch of people get sick, you'll test in that school. And guess what? You might have to close that school. That's what we did with the flu forever. We, we, we based it on people being sick. But now we're basing it on the non-sick. All the rules and restrictions are on those who aren't ill, not necessarily those who are ill. Your opening statement at the Fauci hearing 
um, was was a tour de force of sort of Hayek 101, and you had just a couple minutes to make that argument. And I would add something to it. So we, you know, we talk about following the science and following the experts and and doing what health professionals tell us to do. But Fauci is not a health professional. He's a government worker. And he's been in there some extraordinary amount of time. So whether we like it or not, he's he's a political animal. Right. And and you can see it in his statements because he wouldn't answer your questions. And, and he's taken every position on masks as far as I can tell. Right. One of the best tweets I saw the other day was that he seems to have an opinion on tender sex and baseball. But when it comes to whether or not you should march in a protest, whether that might be risky to your health, no opinion at all. Refuses to comment on whether or not if you're out in a big city with hundreds of other people protesting racism. In fact, there were actually people, I think, at the WHO who responded and said, well, if the cause is righteous, like protesting against racism, surely you can't catch the disease at those. And it's like... That just shows how political it this is. Sounds a little is, medieval you know? or something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, really. You know, if your motive is good, you can't catch this disease. But I don't know. I'm. I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think his motives are bad. But he is a government doctor. He's only seeing the government perspective, and he's an incredibly cautious person. Yeah. And so he's unwilling. You know, that was my point. Well, if we're going to talk about whether kids should go to school, shouldn't we bring up some statistics? Childhood mortality. Shouldn't we discuss that? And even that, he didn't really want to discuss that because yeah. it is very, very unusual. The WHO had a scientist who came and she broadcast that. She said, according to this study, uh, children are rarely getting this and rarely transmitting it. She linked to a scientific paper. I don't know if it was hers or someone else, but she's a scientist from the WHO. She's not from the right. She's not. She is a government scientist. She says this, within a day... They made her apology, Mao-type apology. I'm sorry. They had a sort of a struggle session with yeah. her. And then she apologizes. I'm so sorry. I spoke against the state. But then they took down the link. And so if you go to her press conference, you can find her still. Maybe you don't find her anymore. But for a while, you could find her. But the link to the WHO study was taken down. And it's amazing, all the stuff that's out there. All this stuff is being taken down. Yeah. And I'm not for having the government get involved, but it doesn't mean I'm not annoyed by, you know, all the stuff on hydroxychloroquine. You know, Twitter has decided that they are the preeminent scientists on, the, on Earth, and you can't, if you disagree with their consensus, by golly, it's not true, and you're spreading disinformation. And the truth of the matter is, and I try to be objective on this, I've got no dog in the fight on hydroxychloroquine. I don't care whether you take it or you don't take it. But the truth of the matter is this, the studies are probably equivocal. There's no blockbuster study saying it helps you. But there's also no definitive study saying it doesn't work, particularly in the early stages. We don't know. And the reason we don't know is it's a difficult study. So if I want to give a bunch of people a drug who don't yet have a disease and only 5% of the public gets the disease, I've got to study a lot of people over months, if not years, to figure it out. To figure out that aspirin prevented heart attacks, they studied like 10,000 doctors as subjects over like a 10-year period. And it's, it's still only like a 5 or a 10% difference to see that aspirin works. But studies like that are very hard to determine. So I'd be the first to say I don't know on it, but I think it sort of, you know, goes against the grain of scientific method and skepticism and the whole thing to say, oh, we're just going to ban anybody who talks about it or any doctors who prescribe it. Um, And then those who went crazy over the safety of it, well, I've taken it twice or a derivative or a, a family of that drug for malaria prophylaxis and so like 50 million people. 
all drugs have side effects. If you ever watch one of them on TV, it says, could cause nausea, vomiting, weight loss, cancer, even death. And meanwhile, millions of people are still taking it because it helps them with their diabetes or whatever. Um, but it's a big mistake to succumb to that. But I think it's also a big mistake to then tell Twitter and Facebook they can't do it. I would say turn them off. Don't use them. If you don't yeah. like them, go to another venue. Yeah. It it's, turns out that political correctness is even more dangerous applied to health than politics is. Um, and that, that's a nice segue to the final question. I know you got to get going, um, but I but I saw your, your tweet storm about Portland and the Trump administration's decision to send some mysterious federal agent force in there. And, and I don't know about you, but I've been watching Portland devolve into chaos for years now. It seems like the last three to five years, there's been violence in the streets every day. And and what's your take on what we should and shouldn't do in Portland? I have a great deal of sympathy for those who are upset about rioting, destruction, and chaos and anarchy in Portland and in other cities, frankly. I think the if you want it to be different, it's important to know how we got here and whose fault it is. Portland's been run by Democrats for 50 years. Minneapolis, run by Democrats for 50 years. Louisville. We have problems in our city in Louisville and Kentucky, last Republican mayor in 1972. I think when you send the federal government in and Trump gets in the middle of that, uh, Trump becomes the target. So just for purely political reasons, I think it's a bad idea because you're taking blame away from the people who deserve to have the blame, the Democrats who have been running our cities. On another note, though, whether or not we should have a federal police force, the Constitution doesn't provide for a federal police force. Um, our founding fathers didn't even like a standing army, much less sending police into communities. Our founding fathers would not even be able to fathom having a federal police official from Washington, D.C. go to Portland. Uh, law enforcement was always local, always has been, always should be. Policing needs to be local, too, and the reason policing ought to be local and not federal even when you're upset. And look, I'm as upset as anybody else about Portland. I think it's terrible, and I would want to do everything we can do to try to prevent it if I lived in Portland. And yet, the job of a policeman is very difficult. A policeman has to keep the peace, keep people from killing each other, arrest people who are trying to invade the rights or space of other individuals, but they also have to protect the, the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights. And so in our country... You are allowed to stand up and hold your sign up. You know, you're allowed to stand up and say, Big Brother sucks. You're allowed to do that. And there's a terrible picture, and I'm going to ask the head of Department of Homeland Security this week about it. There's a video going around of a guy, and I'm not sure if he's holding up a music speaker or if he's holding up a sign. And you see him, and they shoot like a canister towards him, and I think he throws it back, but he's in no way aggressive. He's not armed, doesn't look like he's committed any violence, and he's shot in the head with one of these rubber bullets, which are pretty potent rubber yeah. bullets. They yeah. don't kill you, but it, it, it opened the skin and fractured his skull. And I think he's had to have reconstructive surgery, and it's like... You know, nobody deserves that. And I think a local policeman is a little bit more aware of what they're supposed to do and not do. And I always kind of say this when I go around Kentucky. I, I appreciate that local police come to my rallies to help me, to protect me from crazy people. They usually just kind of are standing there, but they're a deterrent force. And I usually say, you know what, the local police do understand the Fourth Amendment. Because they know they always have to, they're pretty comfortable with it. They have to ask a judge before they go to someone's house. They have to have a warrant. So I think local police are more able to understand the rules of the Fourth Amendment, the Bill of Rights. And so I worry about having a lot of federal police, 
you know, um, another thing we're concerned about and we're looking into is these police are coming from the Department of Homeland Security and the Customs and Border Agents. We've learned that within 100 miles of the border, they can do a lot of things, deportations, arrests, things that do not necessarily have constitutional protection within 100 miles of the border. So you know how they say we have to guard the border against people coming in? That's that's fine. The border's 100 miles. We've looked at the population of the United States. It involves all of our coastal cities. Yeah. So within 100 miles of the border, I think my staff told me it's over 80% of the U.S. population. But they have sort of these military sort of powers within that. And so there's a movement on to try to either make that smaller or do something. And um, I think there's one proposal to make it 25 miles. My point is, well, most cities will be within 25 miles of the coastline, too. I'm not sure it's that much better. Really, if there's going to be a sort of a war zone where you can arrest people who are invading your country, I would think the first couple hundred yards of someone coming in illegally would be a reasonable area where there might be a little more leeway for police. But 25 miles or 100 miles is 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 very worrisome. They're also using in Portland, some of these people are custom, and this isn't really a border. These aren't people invading across the border. They're using the excuse of that to be able to have a, a justification for their police force. Yeah, it sets a, a, a wildly scary precedent where, where everything becomes federal. Right. And you can see the reverse of this. Trump is doing this because of mayhem and rioting, which I think a lot of us are sympathetic to stopping that. You could see how it could be used to uh, send in, you know, police to confiscate guns. Yeah. You could see how it could be have people sent in to confiscate books. What if you're writing, God forbid, but what if you were writing books saying hydroxychloroquine works? Hmm. You know, I could see them wanting to take those books because those could be, you know, so dangerous to yeah. public thought, you know. Yeah. But uh, well, that's a depressing way to end this. What's <laughs> what's what's the hap? Give us a one-liner happy news. All right, here's my happy news, and I, you know, I, you and I were talking earlier. Is there a happy channel you can turn to on television? Well, there isn't. But um, if I want to think about um, the world in a positive way, I like to go to humanprogress.org, and it's a website, uh, Marion Two P. Is that right? Yep. Two pieces. Yep. Uh, writes his website. I'm a big fan of his. And there's just so much good news when you put it in perspective. And this is true also of things that right now, what I don't like about the, the race consciousness is everybody's saying it's a terrible place and America is a terrible place. Were there blemishes in our history? Obviously, did we do things wrong in the past? But compared to any other time in American history or world history, this is the best of all possible worlds. There's less racism, less discrimination than there's ever been at any time in the world. There's also more wealth than there's ever been. And the reason I think we shouldn't get too distraught about race and make sure making everything about race is I really, if I'm talking to 100 young African-American men and women who are like graduating from college, I'm going to tell them the world's your oyster, baby. This is a great place public corporations, everybody. Is there still some bad people out there? Yes. But guess what? There's never been a better time to be hired and employed and advanced in the public world than there's ever been based. There really is no more of this systemic racism in big business or in government. You know, we've gotten beyond the terrible people like Woodrow Wilson, who brought racism into government hiring. We're in so much better place. But there is a there's a downside to saying everybody hates everybody and we're a terrible place because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that everybody's going to talk about nothing but but that and instead uh, you know 
I, I don't know. I just see so many good things going on. But humanprogress.org looks at a lot of this economic statistics and shows how much better off than we have been, and this is for all races, but how much better off we've been in a long, long time. Okay, you single-handedly saved this episode. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Senator. All right, thank you. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.